Well, hey, um, if you uh, have a Bible with you this morning, I want you to find Mark chapter 14. If you don't, we're going to have it on the screen for you. Uh, We are about halfway through a series uh, that we've entitled, I Have Decided. I Have Decided. And we are following Jesus to the cross, those last moments, that that final week. uh, And uh, we are, as we do that, we're really looking uh, first inwardly to say, have I decided to follow Jesus? Have I really decided to follow him? And if I have, that's going to be shown in how I treat and commit to the church, his bride. Uh, and then uh, over the back half of this, we're going to talk about how we do that. But, but today we're going to kind of finish up that, that first part. And so uh, it's kind of a long passage of scripture today. And, and so I'm sitting in a chair because I want it to feel a little bit more like story time. <laughs> As I read the scripture, I want us to, to remember that this is a story. And uh, to set it up a little bit more, I, I want us to think about uh, what's happening in this story, okay? And so in this, Jesus is going to be put on trial twice. And in the middle, it's like a compliment sandwich, except for not compliments. In the middle is this encounter with Peter. And so as I read uh, first uh, from Mark chapter 14, verse 53 through 15, I want to ask, if you would, that you'd follow along either on the screen or on your Bible there with you, and uh, just to take note of what's happening in this story, and then we'll pray for our time in the Word. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree, even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them and, and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy! The temple servants also took him and slapped him. Well, while Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You certainly are one of them, since you're also a Galilean. And then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. 
As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. And so Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And so wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we do just ask that through your word this morning, you would speak to us, teach us, reveal to us the good news of the gospel. Help us, Father, to not just believe, but to walk in our faith, to put our faith into action. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hate to stand out for all the wrong reasons. Anybody else with me? I hate to stand out for all the wrong reasons. I remember one of those times that I stood out for the wrong reason. Uh, I, some of you know I played college football, and uh, you look at my arms. Aren't those things beastly? A small gun show. Conceal and carry is not hard for my arms. So we get to college football, and the first thing we have to do is a bench press test, right? So when you bench press, you've got to, you know, push weight up. And I've got long arms, so those of you who like, like working out, like you'll know that a combination of long arms and no muscles is like double bad. And I'm like, man, I just play quarterback. I throw a football. I don't lift weights. And I'm watching as all these guys in the room, I mean, like 225 is like the minimum. Like, I warm up on 225. I'm like, oh. like, I'm praying, Lord, help me. Help me. I'd never benched over 165 in my life. I was super embarrassed. So I managed to squeeze up 185 which was like a big deal because I got a 25 plate you know, if, you, if you work out, right? Like there's 25 with my 45. And then it was my worst nightmare because they posted everybody's bench max, right? Guess how many people were under 200? There was two, okay, there was one other. There was, it wasn't the kicker. Man, the kicker at that point in time was buff. He, uh, he actually got an NFL tryout, so... Uh, yeah, that, was, that didn't even work out for me. It was this other little pencil neck receiver. And so, uh, pencil neck, that's affectionate. I can say that because I am one, okay? Um, but man, I have never wanted to fade into the crowd more than when you have to go up and see that there are two guys under 200 on the team and bench press, and you're one of them. Right? It's like, 
forget all those dreams I had of being the starting quarterback. Like, I just hope I stay on the team. Like, don't kick me off, right? I, I was, uh, you go from, you know, coming on campus thinking you're this, this big deal and you're going to play football and you want to stand out and, and show everybody what you're made of to all of a sudden when you realize that you maybe don't have what it takes that you just want to fade to the background. You just want to kind of hide. Why try to stand out when I know that I'm going to fail? Right? That became, whether I realized it or not, that was the question that was like irking in my mind. Why try to stand out if I know that I don't have what it takes to compete on some of these levels? And you know, I've realized over the years that there are many times that I still feel that way, even spiritually. That I'm failing spiritually. Sin is having its way in my life in a season. And that same question that was tempting me back then over my 185 bench press tempts me at times in my walk with Christ. I know that I don't have what it takes. I know that I'm going to fail. So why even try? For me, I have this little friend. His name is Just a Little More. Just a Little More likes to visit me. This is just me personally. And he likes to increase sin in my life. Just a little more sleep, my alarm clock says, as I hit snooze, right? Just a little more of that TV series, I say, as I hit the next episode on Netflix. Just a little more, and I could get a bigger TV or a nicer couch or a nice big truck. I grew up on a farm. A truck would be great. Just a little more. And when that friend of mine, just a little more, creeps up in my life, Right? I find myself wrestling with that question. If I'm still trying to wrestle these things down, if I'm still trying to wrestle down this sin in my life, why try anything else? Why step out of my comfort zone? Why go outside? Why attempt something great for God? Why try to put my faith in action? Why go outside? It's just easier to fall back in the crowd. And that's where we find Peter here in Mark chapter 14. We've kind of been watching his story over the last few weeks. He was the one who stood up and said, I will never leave you, Jesus. And then he's the one who chops off the ear. And so in that moment, he's no doubt realized how weak he is. Maybe he's wrestling with that same question. I just want to fall back into the crowd. He's not trying to stand out anymore, but he he wants to stay on the team. And that's what we see at the beginning of this section of Scripture in verse 54. In verse 54, we read about where Peter is. It says, Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. He didn't want to stand out anymore. He didn't want to try to do something great. He was just a little nervous about even being there, but he didn't want to leave, and so he's just hanging out in the shadows. If you're familiar with Scripture, you may have a verse hearkening in your head because he was neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, right? Peter's hanging out in the middle, in the gray zone. He's neither hot nor cold. And, and as he's hanging out here by the fire, he begins to deny Christ. Three denials, right? Three denials. Uh, and and he, he, this girl comes up and, and he denies, nope, I wasn't with him. I, I didn't know him. There's really kind of a pattern. There's some, some different types of denials that we see in this. Peter first denied his past, right? He denied his past. He's like, no, you got that wrong. I wasn't with 
the disciples. I wasn't, that, that wasn't where I was. And then they're like, no, you, you were with those people. And he's like, I wasn't with those people. He denied his people. And then they're like, no, you, you were with him. You're a Galilean. He's like, listen, I'm, I'm going to swear. I'm going to curse. I'm going to deny my person, myself, right? I, I'm denying all of those things. That was not me. Don't we so often do that? In the heat of the moment, when we're trying to figure out what to do next, when we're trying to figure out just how to make it through the day, we're trying to figure out who we are and what God is calling us to, we begin to deny our past. We begin to deny the people that we're around. We begin to deny maybe even ourselves. We kind of lose ourselves in this because we're afraid that we're going to fail. We're afraid that we don't have what it takes. We think about that in the context of our our church life, our spiritual life, questions like, why lead a community group when I know that I'm going to make mistakes? Like, why do that? Why set myself up for a potential failure? I know that I'm not the parent that I want to be, right? And so I might just try to escape that responsibility. It's not flamboyant, but it's evident. I skirt by, I find ways to avoid the house or to get out of bedtime duties. Because I, I, I'm not the parent that I want to be, and, I, and, and I'm a little scared of that. Maybe you're like, I can sing, I can play a little bit, but why lead worship when I know that I'm going to mess up? I, I'm not as good as the people on stage. Why even bother with Jesus and the church knowing that I'm going to let him down? That I'm going to sin, that I'm going to screw up. Why even mess with it? Why ask someone to read the Bible together when I know that I'm, I'm not going to have all the answers, I'm probably going to fall behind in the reading, I'm probably going to fail, so I'm just not going to start? Maybe it's, why get married? Why, <laughs> why get married? Why risk the loss, the hurt of divorce? Why risk any of that? I know that I'm not good at commitment, so why take a chance on that? be in an undefined relationship with you. Surely no one will get hurt if that's the case. And in the middle of all this, as we're trying to fall back into the crowd like Peter was, we're, we're still trying to reap the benefits of following Christ. We're pretending. We still want to tag along, but we will defend why we can't be more involved. We will defend why our past disqualifies us or, or we'll cover up our identity to protect ourselves from being asked or challenged to do more. But, but what actually happens is when we get lost or when we fall back into the crowd, we lose sight of our past. We lose sight of our people. We lose sight of who we are. We're so busy keeping up our defenses that we don't even know what we're defending. All right, enough about Peter. <laughs> Suffice it to say, we're like him, right? Let's talk about Jesus. So while Peter is denying everything to defend himself, Jesus is defending us instead of defending himself. You see, Jesus died to defend us instead of defending himself. Jesus refused to defend himself. I can't say this enough times. I can't be like less excited about this. The idea that someone would deny to defend himself, that, that he would not stand up for his own good 
so that I could live forever. That's incredibly good news. That's something that I can't even begin to fathom. I'm just trying to defend why I could only bench 185. My mom and dad gave me little bitty arms. It's not my fault. I want a trophy, right? Watch as Jesus stands in front of both the religious leaders of his day and the political leaders of his day and refuses to defend himself. Verses 60 and 61. It says, Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. And again he was questioned, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Who he was as a, spiritual, as a good, spiritual, moral person was being called into question, and he refused to defend himself. And because he refused to defend himself, they convicted him and sent him on to the political court. And in the political court, he faced Pilate. And Pilate, verse, uh, chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. Right? which isn't just a testimony to all the things that they were saying he had done wrong, but it's also a testimony to the fact that they couldn't even get their stories straight. He's like, it'd be really easy to defend yourself by just saying, listen, you guys don't even know what you're saying. It doesn't make any sense. But Jesus still did not answer. And so, I, I love this, Pilate was what? Amazed. Amazed. Isn't it so interesting that at our core, as human beings, we're trying to defend ourselves. We're trying to, to prove to people that, that we're good. We're trying to prove to people that we're trustworthy, that we're all of these things. But what amazes the leaders of that day is that he did the very opposite and chose not to defend himself. It's amazing. It stirs awe and wonder on, in us when we think that God himself, in the form of a man, did not defend himself before men. And this wasn't just your plain old everyday trial. This was the most unjust trial of all time. Of all time. J.D. Greer wrote an article just this week. I, I love when this happens. Uh, <laughs> like I start reading this passage, and I think this came out on Monday or maybe even Sunday as I was preparing for this week. And he wrote this blog about how Jesus' trial was the most unjust trial in, in history. And he lists at least these five things. He talks about how the timing of Christ's trial was unjust. So uh, this trial happened in the middle of the night. If you notice, his trial with the Sanhedrin, with the religious leaders, it started in the night, like they took him out of the garden, they went right to trial, they have this trial, and in the morning they convict him. They convict him. Now, not only that, if you might remember, this is during the Passover, okay? This is during a, a festival, and, and both of those things were illegal according to the Jewish law. This would be similar to saying that uh, someone was arrested on Christmas Eve, and by Christmas morning they'd been convicted and no one had been told about it. If that happened to somebody, a, a very notable figure in our society, we would be crying crying on Twitter, of course, <laughs> right? We would be crying out for the injustice of the situation, but that's exactly what happened to Jesus. The timing was incredibly unjust, but not just that. The due process experience was unjust. 
You see, because in this trial with the Sanhedrin, the people who were judging him and making a decision about whether he was guilty or innocent were the same people who were accusing him. Can you imagine in today's trial if the judge walked down and stood in the, I don't even know what the term is now that I'm saying this, right? Like he was the, one, he was the lawyer who was accusing you of doing those wrong. You're not going to feel very good about your odds when the judge is the one who's accusing you. But that's exactly what was happening. This was completely unfair. The use of witnesses was unjust. Not only did the witnesses in the initial trial not agree with each other, they didn't wait for witnesses to confirm the stories, which was something that they had to do by law. And then they, they, you know, they, they mixed up with the, the witnesses who were at the hearing with Barabbas, and they roused them up to get them to say false things. They were totally tampering with the witnesses. It didn't make sense. It was completely unfair. The sentencing was unjust. Anytime a sentence of death was given in Jewish law, they were to wait three days to give opportunity for people to come forward and to, to be witnesses and to, to share more about the truth of the matter. But they didn't do that. One night, he's convicted by the Sanhedrin. He goes to trial with Pilate. He's convicted there, and then he's taken away immediately to be whipped, to be beaten, to be crucified. Finally, Pilate's final consent was unjust. It's easy to see, even as we read thousands of years later, that Pilate felt that Jesus was innocent. And yet he convicted him. He did it to avoid the political ramifications, not because it was the right thing to do. You know, we talk a lot about injustice in our culture. We talk about what's fair, what's not fair, what's reasonable. And I think those are all worthy conversations. When I think about what Jesus Christ went through at this trial, and in that moment chose not to defend himself, I just want to sit with Jesus and I want to say, why? Wasn't there another way? J.D. Greer came to this conclusion. He said, Jesus was identifying with every one of us who has ever had to undergo injustice. Everyone who has ever been betrayed, overlooked, abused, or mistreated. He didn't just want to die for us. He wanted to walk through the broken experience of injustice so that he could say to us, I know what you are going through because I've been there. And he entered into that injustice for us so he could redeem us from it. Guys and gals, the good news of the gospel today is that whatever your story is, whatever that has happened in your life that isn't fair, whatever has happened in your life that is not just, whatever has happened that has hurting you, broken you, torn you apart from your spouse, whatever it is that is eating at you, Christ has identified with you by going through the most unjust trial in all of human history. There is nothing that is fair or reasonable or right about what Christ went through, and yet he chose not to defend himself so that he could defend you. Jesus was judged by men who were also accusing him. But we, you and I, we are judged by Jesus who is also defending us. Not only is it just 
you know, this moment where he's standing in the gap for us, but he actually comes over and takes our side. Can you see the grace in that? John 5.22, Jesus says this, The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He's given it to the Son. God gave all judgment to the one who was most unjustly judged. But because he denied to defend himself, he is able to turn and say to the Father, This is Blake. He is innocent. I have found him innocent. Put your name in there. This is Moose. Moose, he's found you innocent. He's found you innocent. All the stuff in your life and you're innocent. That's amazing. Jody, you're innocent. Jesus chose not to defend himself so that he could look at you and see you for who you really are and then turn to the Father and say, they're innocent. Jesus died to defend us instead of defending himself. Peter, on the other hand, tries to defend himself. Do we ever do that? Can anybody quote the Miranda rights? I can't, so I'm going to read them just for fun. You have the right to remain silent. I've always wanted to say that. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Maybe we can read these in parenting. That would be really fun. You have the right to have an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed to you by the court. With these rights in mind, are you still willing to talk with me about the charges against you? Our Miranda rights. You see, when we walk through life trying to defend ourselves, we give up our right to be defended by Christ. It's as if we say we think that we have a better shot of defending ourselves in front of the God of the universe than the one who would not defend himself and says we're innocent. And yet we walk through life with a reason, an explanation, an excuse for everything. You know what's really amazing? Despite the fact that we live our daily lives trying to defend ourselves, he still gives us grace. He still defends us. That's how wide and long and tall is the grace of Jesus Christ. So how do you and I respond to that kind of grace? The kind of grace that says, hey, I've defended you, and even though you try to act like you don't need me to defend you, I'm still defending you. How do we respond to that? What do we do in our lives that shows that we are eternally grateful for this incredible gift of God's love and mercy and grace to us? And the answer is that we have only to be silent. To be silent. Stop defending yourself. Stop making excuses. Stop denying the sin and the effects of sin in your life. Stop pretending. Stop pretending. We defend our choices to make excuses for our sin. We defend our past only to make excuses for our future. Well, you see, the, way that, the reason that I'm that way is because of this. It happened in my past. We defend our words only to make excuses for our actions. We are constantly in this defensive, defending mode. And when we get into that mode, it's like we're canceling our Miranda rights, right? 
It's like we're saying, Jesus, I really don't need you to be my lawyer. I got this. Is there an alternative? I believe there is. Mark 14, 72. Peter has denied Christ three times. The rooster crows again. We read this in verse 72. Immediately, rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. He broke down and wept. What do we do instead of defending ourselves? Instead, we have remorse for the things that have broken our relationship with God. You see, when we choose not to defend ourselves, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ, who endured death on a cross and still lives today. That ain't weak. That's saying, I stand with the most powerful action in all of human history. He defends me. You see, when we think about our walk with Christ, it's not enough to just want a different life. It's not enough that you desire something different. It's not enough that you regret what you did. Your sin has to break you down. You have to realize that it's breaking you down. You have to quit making excuses and defending why you did the sin. And in that moment, where you have true remorse, where you break down and weep in front of the Father, Jesus comes swooping in, covering you, defending you, and saying, no, 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 he's innocent. His sins are mine. Her sins, I've covered those. You see, you can't have repentance without remorse. You can't have repentance without remorse. If you're new to church, this word repentance, it it simply means to turn around, right? It means that I'm walking this way, away from God, and I turn and I walk and I return to God. But so often in our desire to be action-oriented, we kind of half-bake that, and we think that we can do all that on our own. We think that if we just start doing different things, that that will make it all okay. But in that, we don't realize, we don't remember and have remorse for our sins. Notice how this action of repentance comes true in Peter's life, right? How do we repent? It starts with him remembering what Christ had said to him. The Lord can use all kinds of things to help us remember his word to us. Sometimes it's just being in scripture, it's getting back in scripture. Sometimes it's a conversation. Sometimes it happens in prayer. There's no limit to that. But, but we must remember what the Lord has said to us. And when we realize that there is brokenness and that there are things in our life that are separating us from God, we have to have remorse. If it doesn't hurt us that we are separated from God and that we have sin in our life that is separating us from God, then there's something wrong. We must have remorse. And then, and only then, are we able to repent with a broken heart and come back to the Father. Faith and repentance. So often we try to separate those two things, right? Well, I believe in God and that's enough. He'll take care of me. But if you don't repent, your faith in yourself is greater than your faith in God. 
Or maybe you're on the other side of the equation and you think, I just got to change my life. I just got to make some changes. I just got to get better. Well, if you don't have faith, your repentance is about self-help, not dying to yourself. You see, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They go together like peanut butter and jelly. Strawberry jelly, to be exact, right? Faith and repentance. You can't say you believe and not see your life changing and turning and returning to the Lord. You also can't just continue to try and have a better life and not believe that it is God who is working that in you. Faith goes with repentance. James 2.18, a familiar verse, says, Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. Um, I like to share stories about my family, but it's also one of the scariest things that I think I do as a preacher. Sometimes you worry that you're shaping and molding your family's life in a way that's not healthy. But, um, but I share this story anyway. I prayed about it, okay? All right. My daughter, Tinley, is six years old. And... Uh, Man, I care about my daughter's salvation. I want her to be in heaven. I want her to enjoy everlasting life with the God of the universe. But it's a super scary thing for me knowing that, man, she gets to be around the gospel. She gets to be around church people. She gets to hear all these things. And, and man, how do, I, how do I know, like, what's real in her life? Right? So, a couple Sundays ago, She'd seen a baptism, and her and Preston are sitting in the back of our car. We're driving, and she's like, Dad, ready to get baptized. Scares me to death, right? I would love for that to happen, but I'm like, I just, I, how do I discern? God, help me. And I was like, well, why do you want to do that? She said, because I believe in Jesus. All right, we're off to a good start. I said, well, what do you believe about Jesus? She said, He's the Son of God. And he died on the cross to forgive me. Oh, snap. Might have to actually do something. And then Preston chimes in. He goes, and don't forget he came back to life with power. (laughs) Son, I'm really not ready for you. Slow down there, buddy. So Caitlin and I are kind of looking at each other. And we're like, we'll talk about that more sometime. So that night trying to get ready for bed. Bedtime is a terrible thing. It's a te- I mean, it's just terrible. Most nights. I'll give him credit some nights. But Tinley had had a rough night getting ready for bed. And so we're having one of those moments. I'm sitting on her bed, talking to her. We're getting ready to pray. She goes to sleep. I said, Tinley, um, what do you think about, what do you think about how you act when you're not getting ready for bed? She said, it wasn't good. You're right. I said, do you think it was sin? She goes, yeah. I said, me too. I said, it's a good thing Jesus forgives us, huh? She goes, yeah, it is. I said, have you ever asked Jesus to forgive you? Nope. I thought, this is it. I said, Tinley, do you want to ask Jesus to forgive you? Nope. <laughs> I walked downstairs and I said, hey, 
Caitlin, we're good. She's not ready yet. <laughs> right? And she's not ready yet because although she knows the gospel and she believes in who Jesus is and she knows the truth about him, she's not ready to repent. She's not ready to let go of those things. And that's okay for her. <laughs> you see, faith and repentance, they go together. They're two sides of the same coin. And so when we think about this, this sandwich, right, of Jesus not defending himself, and in the middle there's Peter trying to defend himself. When we, when we decide once and for all, right, like I have decided, when we decide once and for all, I'm going to quit trying to defend my actions. I'm going to quit trying to defend the fact that, that I'm just messed up and screwed up and I've got sin in my life and it's wreaking havoc in areas of my life. When I stop trying to defend that, now I'm ready to repent, right? And I need to do that. I need to run and walk and, and move into that repentance. Because I can stand here all day long and say, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to defend myself. And God's somewhere back here behind me. I love what happens when we come to that moment of repentance. And here's the cool thing about repentance and the scary thing about repentance. There's this initial moment where we learn what repentance is and we experience it, but then it keeps happening in our lives, right? Like, I'm, uh, I'm going to go repent after this, right? Like, there's, there's just things that, that continually come up, and I have to keep returning to the Lord. But I love how we see it play out in Peter's life, right? Some of you all know this story. John 21, verses 4 through 7. I love this image. I've got it on the screen for you. It says, when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. Let me, let me catch you up. Let me give some context. I'm sorry. John 21 is happening after Jesus has died. He's come back to life, right? And he's reconnecting with his disciples. So when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? Nope, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them. You'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and he plunged into the sea. He plunged in. Think about that. If you had denied knowing this person, if you had, had completely stabbed this guy in the back and walked away from him, man, I'm not sure I'd ever want to see the guy. I definitely want to, wouldn't want to meet him face to face. But Peter, because he had remembered what the Lord said and because he was broken by his sin, is able to repent and plunge in and go full force after Christ. You see, the reason that so many of us struggle to repent and truly run after the Lord is because we're not willing to be broken by our sin. We're not willing to say, my sin messes me up. It messes up my relationship with Christ. We're not willing to have remorse and be broken by it. But Peter, because he did, because he remembered, because he was remorseful, man, when the opportunity came to run toward Christ, he was able to plunge into the sea. How cool would it have been to see that, right? Here's this grown man with something tied around his waist, just whoosh, 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 through the water. 
got crazy images of those social media things where people are trying to come out of the ocean and waves just taking them out, right? But Peter's too strong for that. Plunged into the sea. You see, repentance gives us permission to go, to act, to move. Repentance frees us up to believe that we are who God says we are. It gives us the freedom to own that God created us in His image and that He has a plan for our lives. And when we live without repentance, we live this defensive life that has a reason for everything and is always worried about who's going to find us out for who we really are. Repentance frees us up to be who God made us to be. It allows us to plunge in and to give ourselves to whatever God has for us. But until we do that, we're always looking over our shoulder. We're always worried. We're always wondering who's going to find us out. You can't be who God created you to be until you repent. But when you do, you can plunge into the water. You can dive in head first. You can go outside. And you can commit out of excitement rather than out of obligation. So the question is, who's going with me? Who's going to plunge in? Right? Who's willing to, to be remorseful for the sin that separates them from God and to say, I really want to run after him, but I, I need a moment, right? I need a moment to sit and think and be like cognizant of the fact that sin is tearing me up and is separating me from God. If that's you today, I pray that the Holy Spirit would give you the courage, the faith, to act on that. To not just say you believe, but to put your belief in action. For some of you, that may mean coming and, and praying. Just kneeling before the Lord and saying, God, I am sorry. I'm a broken sinner, and I've been trying to do this on my own. I've been trying to defend myself. If you need to do that, you can, you can pray wherever you need to. In your chair, right here, in the back with me. You can go to the bathroom. I don't care. The Lord will meet you wherever you need to meet. But repent. Return to the Lord today so that you can plunge in and go outside with Him. As we respond to the gospel, the band's going to come. They're going to lead us in song. You, you sing. The Lord may continue to reveal truth and teach you through the singing of songs to call us together, to hear each other's voices, to have the gospel sung to us. If you're a baptized believer in Christ, you can come forward and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice. And that helps us to remember, right? Which may be the first step of your repentance. To remember the truth about who Jesus is. That he died without defending himself so that he could defend you. And I pray that that would break us today. You can respond through giving, through prayer. However else the Lord leads you today, I pray that the Holy Spirit take ownership in your life. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, 
We speak so much of Jesus today. How he defended us. He denied himself. But I pray that we would not overlook you in this moment. That you sent your one and only son. That whoever would believe in him, that whoever would place their faith in him, wouldn't perish, but would have everlasting life. And so, Father, we do just pray in this moment that if there are those who are here with us this morning that have not placed their faith and trust in you, that haven't repented, that haven't put their faith into action, God, we pray that you would help them to do that today. You would help them to, to come back and to pray, to, to share their story, to figure out what their next step is. God, we also just pray that those of us who maybe like Peter, have been walking with you for some time. Maybe we're in a season of thinking, we've got this. We can defend ourselves. God, I pray that you would break us over our sin, that you would call us to repentance so that we would be freed up to be who you've made us to be and to follow the plans for our life. Spirit, reign in this place. Protect us from Satan's attacks in this moment. Speak clearly to us. Reveal the truth about who you are and about who we are. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.